0: This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cohn friends. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting ZenNovaScotia.com. I would like to start talking about the Paramitas. There are a few of them. Depends on how you count... Foundational Buddhism would say there are ten. Traditionally in the Mahayana we say there are six, but then sometimes we say there are six plus four. So it's still ten, but it's a different ten. Four are different from one list to the other. I don't want to hold to one or the other, because we'll miss something really good if we decide that we'll just do this side or just this side. Paramita is usually translated as perfection, so we speak of the ten perfections or the six perfections. Um, It's also, from what I just read today, apparently reasonable to translate it as a a transcendence, the ten transcendences. It depends on what you think the etymology of para is. Either way, we have to be careful, because it sounds so good. (laughs) It sounds like something we might achieve. Which is to say, if we're talking about the paramita of generosity, we might imagine, if it's a perfection, that we will perfect generosity. That's not the point. Or maybe worse, that we'll transcend generosity which I hope you don't do too soon. So we should understand all of these as practices, as things that we realize, first in the sense of noticing them within ourselves, and second in the sense of making them real in the world. However we can, clumsy though we may be, we take these and we try to actualize them. The order is fixed, and again, it's different according to the list, but it always is the same on this list. It's always the same on this list. And there are different ways of understanding that. I've heard some people say that they actually happen in order, and so you would need to take up the first paramita in order to understand the second paramita. Another version that I've heard is that, they, that each has a complement. And so if you imagine a wheel where these are all at the ends of spokes, then, for example, if the list is 10, that would mean that 1 is opposite 6, and that 1 and 6 are, are working with one another, that there's a friction there that's, that's integral to how we understand the practice of each, that kind of thing. Puzzle-making. It's fun. It's fun, but we won't really go into that very much. We're just going to go through each one. The first one, uh, and I'm glad for this, because it's the kind of thing that gives you faith in the whole tradition, is generosity. And that's a favorite topic. We call it dana. I think that in in the West in particular, this word dana has come to mean the money that we put in that basket. And so often that would be labeled as dana. Or if you give money to a teacher, you say, this is dana. That's dana. Yes. But that's a very narrow understanding of what it is. Dana encompasses our entire understanding of giving. Our entire understanding of offering. and And specifically, the lens that we bring to this is an understanding that to give something, to truly give something is to offer it with no hope of being compensated. That's what a gift is. We struggle with this as children. Children give each other gifts and then they want them back. My... My children will give me toys in these great moments of of generosity. They'll say, Papa, this one's for you. And they'll put it on my pillow and they'll say, this is just for you. And I'll say, oh, thank you. That's so kind. And then the next day they'll come back and they'll say, I need that toy. <laughs> so, okay. Or, they aren't there yet, but they will be. I imagine that At some point, they'll start to give me toys and then think, maybe I'll get something in return. Maybe if I bring Papa a glass of water, he'll remember that, and something will happen that's for me. Or maybe even they'll just start to think, well, if I do this, if I brush my teeth right away, I'll be his favorite. I actually watched my son work with this today because he, he has these Pokemon cards. He loves them. And his friends love them. And they trade them back and forth. And he gave one to his friend. And his friend didn't give one. His friend didn't have any. So it was just a gift. But when I went to pick him up from school, they stood there and they were... They didn't know what to do. Neither of them knew what to do. Because his friend didn't really know if he could keep this. And my son didn't really know if he could keep it either. Because he hadn't thought through what this gift might be. And today it went well. And he said, it's okay. You can have it. But it could have gone another way. And I know it could have gone another way. Not just because I know him, but because I know me. And because I know human beings. And this is something that we struggle with our entire lives. It's wonderful that we have these gift-giving moments, birthdays and things, because we get to practice. But we don't necessarily learn to translate that in the way that we're intended. So a present is a present. But nothing else is. Everything has a price. Everything is a transaction. Everything. At work... We, we don't forget that we're being compensated. And we don't forget the question of whether or not we are being compensated fairly for the work we're doing, regardless of whether we love the work we do or not. And after we've worked very hard for a very long time, we sit back and we say something like, Ah, oh, I deserve a break. That word deserve is our most insidious transactional verb. Right. I did enough. And now I must be paid by the universe if that's what it takes. Right? But I haven't been giving this just to give it. Right? Even with, with children, we can, we can learn so much about giving through parenting because the task never goes away. But even then, at the end of the day, we can sit back and say, okay, world, now you owe me. (laughs) That's just like falling into a hole. We have to learn to stop ourselves before that point, we have to learn to understand what is and is not a transaction. There are transactions in the world, but it doesn't all have to be that way. And so in this tradition, we emphasize the idea of doing work that gives you nothing in return. Someone recently described it as he said, "The only way to understand this is to commit to doing something futile." <laughs> and so, in a monastery, it's codified, and you you scrub. You get down on your hands and knees, and you scrub a floor, and then the next day you scrub the same floor, and the next day you scrub the same. It's always clean. it It never goes so long that it needs it. It never goes so long that you can see what you did. Never. And while you're doing it, you're thinking, I'm a schmuck. (laughs) Right? So you you shift. You shift from thinking someone owes me because that's been taken away from you, right? Because you're not doing anything. You're accomplishing nothing. No one is benefiting from this. And you've moved into this other place where you think, I'm being taken advantage of because it's still a transaction. Right? But now... I'm inevitably on the losing end of it. I'm a sucker. And you do it over and over and over again. And then one day, you don't care about that anymore. And we all have an experience of this in something. The floor is a very concrete one. If we're lucky, we understand it in something like marriage. Dating is very transactional, right? We're trying to see... At first, maybe there's a winner and there's a loser. And then later, there's this fantasy of the relationship. And the relationship is winning or losing. Right, The relationship is having a good day or the relationship is having a bad day or the relationship deserves something. And then eventually, again, if you're lucky, you just find yourself pouring yourself into it and you know that it won't give back in the way that you would have imagined five years ago or ten years ago. Not because you've given up but because you stop putting a price on it. That's giving. And until you reach that point, it's not. It's bargaining. I've spoken of this before, but, but traditionally we would say that there are four generosities. And we can understand these as levels. So the first generosity is material giving, concrete giving. Not just things, but things like time, the things that you actually think you own, right? So I think that my time is my own. And when I agree to drive someone to the airport, that's giving, because because I'm giving away my time, right? Now, at this level, it doesn't mean that I'm not thinking transactionally. I almost certainly am. (laughs) But I'm practicing letting go of something. I'm practicing opening my hand. If you can't share a sandwich with someone, there's nothing you can do in this practice. That's step one. (laughs) You have to be able to tear it in half and say, Here even though you're pretty hungry and it would really be nice to get the whole sandwich. You have to be able to do that. Because if you can do that, that opens up the second generosity, which is protection. To protect something, to protect someone, to take something under your care. For some people, it's it's the environment. For some people, it's it's just... It's their children. It can be very big, it can be very small, but you can't understand the idea of protection until you've learned to let go of something that you think is yours. Because when you're protecting something, then the object of the giving is something that you absolutely know is not yours. I understand that the greater natural environment on this planet is not mine. (laughs) I hope we all do. And so when I invest in that, if I decide that that is my calling, that means that I'm offering myself up through and to something kind of impersonal. And we get there, again, by sharing our lunch. And then we practice that second generosity. We practice giving in that way. We practice making ourselves bigger so that we can hold something that's bigger than ourselves. And in doing that, we start to understand deeply what is not ours. And we move into the third generosity, which is the generosity of fearlessness. To move in and convey and to express fearlessness in your actions is the third level of giving. If you have ever been close to someone who moves that way, who carries their work in that way, you know that it's a gift because you know how transformative it is for the people around. We don't encounter fearlessness often. And when we do, it's jarring and it is inspiring and it invites us into that same place. And it makes things possible. At the level of fearlessness, the transactional relationship is gone. You know what you have to do, and you do it. And whether that looks like success or looks like failure is beyond the point. And after you have absorbed that, after you have embodied fearlessness, you enter into the fourth generosity, which is the transmission of the Dharma itself. Which doesn't have to look like anything in particular. So, if your investment is in the Dharma, if that's the thing that you want more than anything, you start by sharing your time with someone. And then you move into holding something else, into cultivating it and feeding it and keeping it safe. And from there, you discover what it means to be absolutely sure of your role. Again, never of how to achieve it. Never. I know bodhisattvas, and none of them know what to do. And from there, the Dharma opens up. Not just the Dharma, because the Dharma is always present, but the Dharma moves. And what you are giving is that through all of the rest. Sometimes all four of these can happen simultaneously. But two can't happen without one. And three can't happen without two. This teaching insists that if you can't share a sandwich with someone, you can never know what fearlessness is. Ever. (laughs) That if your fundamental stance is transactional, if your fundamental stance is about keeping what's yours, if your fundamental stance is about what you deserve... Fearlessness is beyond your grasp. I love this kind of teaching. It's not a Zen teaching. Zen people never make these lists, right? They never say this is step one, this is step two, this is step three. But I love this because because I think that we sometimes... We might try to jump. We might try to imagine this abstraction of generosity. And in fact, I think that's one of the deepest dangers of not just this practice, but any Buddhist practice, is we take these ideals and we think, well, the way to express this ideal is to just ooze this. I'm going to emanate this. I'm going to sit and I'm going to face the wall and I'm going to do it from a stance of giving, I'm going to offer, right? A couple months ago, when I had a little bit of a beard, someone I didn't know, someone I work with didn't notice it just because we were busy. And then one day she said, ah, how did you grow that? And there was this idea that somehow I just, you know, just, just made it happen, right? There's so much of this practice that, that if we're not careful, we imagine it, it's the same thing right how am i going to to f- plumb the depths of generosity just like this no this teaching is so beautiful because this teaching says it's simpler than that generosity is literal it's not your idea of what being generous is It's noticing that, that somebody has one minute left on their meter and there's no one coming and you put a dime in. And they'll never know that you did it. Not that a dime gets you anything in Halifax, but still. This teaching says generosity really is generosity. And you don't have to worry about the next part. You don't have to worry about the part that sounds a little bit magical or the part that sounds like it comes in special spiritual colors. Just drive someone to the airport. Cultivate that aspect of yourself. Understand that. And stop whining about it. And you will find without any effort that your reach and your scope expands I believe that I also love this one because it's so hard it's like all the best of our teachings, simple but hard. <laughs> I see transactions all around me, all the time. All the time. The airline lost my luggage for two days, and it wasn't fair. And then they found it, and everything was great. Mm -hmm. It's not that I want to give away my luggage, (laughs) or that they would benefit from that. But, what I couldn't offer them, and, and I bring this up because I think it might be one of the hardest ones, is I didn't give the benefit of the doubt. If you just resolve for a month to offer the people around you the benefit of the doubt, you'll find it's one of the hardest months of your life. Most people will. Because we reserve that little question. We reserve that little judgment. We hold it back. That one we... our, our, uh, our clever cynicism, that's something we don't want to share with anyone. That's not something we want to let go of. We want to keep that. That's like a special little badge. Right? To give that one away, that's much bigger than a sandwich. I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit ZenNovaScotia.com.